the king of clubs. Truth, I observed, laying aside the daily newsmonger, is stranger than fiction. The remark was not perhaps an original one. It appeared to incense my friend. Tilting his egg-shaped head on one side, the little man carefully flicked an imaginary fleck of dust from his carefully creased trousers and observed, How profound! What a thinker is my friend Hastings! Without displaying any annoyance at this quite uncalled-for jibe, I tapped the sheet I had laid aside. You've read this morning's paper? I have, and after reading it, folded it anew, symmetrically. I did not cast it on the floor as you have done with your so lamentable absence of order and method. That's the worst of Poirot. Order and method are his gods. He goes so far as to attribute all his success to them. Well, then you saw the account of the murder of Henry Reedburn, the impresario? It was that which prompted my remark. Not only is truth stranger than fiction, it is more dramatic. Think of that solid middle-class English family, the Oglanders. Father and mother, son and daughter, typical of thousands of families all over this country. The men of the family go to the city every day, the women look after the house. Their lives are perfectly peaceful and utterly monotonous. And last night they were sitting in their neat suburban drawing room at Daisy Mead Streatham, playing bridge. Suddenly, without any warning, the French window bursts open and a woman staggers into the room. Her grey satin frock is marked with a crimson stain. She utters one word, murder, before she sinks to the ground insensible. It is possible that they recognise her from her pictures as Valerie St. Clair, the famous dancer who has lately taken London by storm. Is this your eloquence or that of the Daily Newsmonger? inquired Poirot. Well, the Daily Newsmonger was in a hurry to go to press and contented itself with bare facts, but the dramatic possibilities of the story struck me at once. Poirot nodded thoughtfully. Wherever there is human nature, there is drama. But it is not always just where you think it is. Remember that. Still, I too am interested in that case, since it is likely that I shall be connected with it. Indeed? Oh, yes. A gentleman rang me up this morning and made an appointment with me on behalf of Prince Paul of Morania. But what has that to do with it? <laughs> you do not read your pretty little English scandal papers, the ones with the funny stories and a little mouse has heard, or a little bird would like to know. Hmm? See here. I followed his short, stubby finger along the paragraph. Whether the foreign prince and the famous dancer are really affinities, and if the lady likes her new diamond ring. And now to resume your so dramatic narrative, said Poirot. Mademoiselle St. Clair had just fainted on the drawing-room carpet at Daisy Mead, you remember? I shrugged. And as a result of Mademoiselle's first murmured words when she came round, the two male Oglanders stepped out, one to fetch a doctor to attend to the lady who was evidently suffering terribly from shock, and the other to the police station, whence after telling his story he accompanied the police to Mondésir, Mr. Reedburn's magnificent villa, which is situated at no great distance from Daisy Mead. There they found a great man, who, by the way, suffers from a somewhat unsavoury reputation, lying in the library with the back of his head cracked open like an eggshell. Oh, I have cramped your style, said Poirot kindly. Forgive me, I pray. Ah, here is Monsieur Le Prince. Our distinguished visitor was announced under the title of Count Theodore. 
He was a strange-looking youth, tall, eager, with a weak chin, the famous Morenberg mouth, and the dark, fiery eyes of a fanatic. Monsieur Poirot. My friend bowed. Monsieur, I am in terrible trouble, greater than I can well express. Poirot waved his hand. I comprehend your anxiety. Mademoiselle Sinclair is a very dear friend, is it not so? The prince replied simply, I hope to make her my wife. Poirot sat up in his chair and his eyes opened. The prince continued, I should not be the first of my family to make a morganatic marriage. My brother, Alexander, has also defied the emperor. We are living now in a more enlightened days, free from the old caste prejudice. Besides, Mademoiselle Sinclair, in actual fact, is quite my equal in rank. You have heard hints as to her history. There are many romantic stories of her origin, not an uncommon thing with famous dancers. I have heard that she is the daughter of an Irish charwoman, also the story which makes her mother a Russian grand duchess. But the first story is, of course, nonsense, said the young man. But the second is true. Valerie, though bound to secrecy, has let me guess as much. Besides, she proves it unconsciously in a thousand ways. I believe in heredity, Monsieur Poirot. Mm, I too believe in heredity, said Poirot thoughtfully. I have seen some strange things in connection with it. Moi qui vous parle. Mm. But to business, Monsieur le Prince, what do you want of me? What do you fear? I may speak freely, may I not? Is there anything to connect Mademoiselle Sinclair with her crime? She knew Reedburn, of course. Yes, he professed to be in love with her. And she? Oh, no, she would have nothing to say to him. Poirot looked at him keenly. Had she any reason to fear him? The young man hesitated. There was an incident. You know Zara, the clairvoyant? No. Oh, she is wonderful. You should consult her sometime. Valerie and I went to see her last week. She read the cards for us. She spoke to Valerie of trouble, of gathering clouds. Then she turned up the last card, the covering card, they call it. It was the king of clubs. She said to Valerie, Beware, there is a man who holds you in his power. You fear him. You are in great danger through him. You know who I mean. Valerie was white to the lips. She nodded and said, Yes, yes, I know. Shortly afterwards we left. Zara's last words to Valerie were, Beware of the king of clubs. Danger threatens you. I questioned Valerie. She would tell me nothing, assured me that all was well. But now, after last night, I am more sure than ever that in the king of clubs Valerie saw Reedburn and that he was the man she feared. The prince paused abruptly. And now you understand my agitation when I opened the paper this morning, supposing Valerie in a fit of madness. Oh, it is impossible. Poirot rose from his seat and patted the young man kindly on the shoulder. Do not distress yourself, I beg of you. Leave it in my hands. You will go to Streatham? I gather she is still there at Daisy Mead, prostrated by the shock. I will go at once. I have arranged matters through the embassy. You will be allowed access everywhere. Then we will depart. Hastings, you will accompany me? Au revoir, Monsieur le Prince. Mondésir was an exceptionally fine villa, 
thoroughly modern and comfortable. A short carriage drive led up to it from the road, and beautiful gardens extended behind the house for some acres. On mentioning Prince Paul's name, the butler who answered the door at once took us to the scene of the tragedy. The library was a magnificent room, running from back to front of the whole building with a window at either end, one giving on the front carriage drive and the other on the garden. It was in the recess of the latter that the body had lain. It had been removed not long before, the police having concluded their examination. That is annoying, I murmured to Poirot. Who knows what clues they may have destroyed? My little friend smiled. Ha <laughs> ha. How often must I tell you that clues come from within? In the little grey cells of the brain lies the solution of every mystery. He turned to the butler. I suppose except for the removal of the body, the room has not been touched? No, sir. It's just as it was when the police came up last night. But these curtains now, I see they pull right across the window recess. They are the same in the other window? Were they drawn last night? Yes, sir. I draw them every night. Then Reedburn must have drawn them back himself? I suppose so, sir. Did you know your master expected a visitor last night? He did not say so, sir, but he gave orders he was not to be disturbed after dinner. You see, sir, there is a door leading out of the library, onto the terrace at the side of the house. He could have admitted anyone that way. Was he in the habit of doing that? The butler coughed discreetly. <clears throat> I believe so, sir. Poirot strode to the door in question. It was unlocked. He stepped through it onto the terrace which joined the drive on the right. On the left it led up to a red brick wall. The fruit garden, sir. There's a door leading into it farther along, but it was always locked at six o'clock. Poirot nodded and re-entered the library, the butler following. Did you hear nothing of last night's events? Well, sir, we heard voices in the library a little before nine, but that wasn't unusual, especially being a lady's uh, voice. But, but, of course, once we were all in the servants' hall, right to the other side, we didn't hear anything at all. And then, about eleven o'clock, the police came. How many voices did you hear? Well, I couldn't say, sir. I only noticed the ladies. Ah. I beg pardon, sir, but Dr. Ryan is still in the house, if you would care to see him. We jumped at the suggestion, and in a few minutes the doctor, a cheery, middle-aged man, joined us and gave Poirot all the information he required. Reedburn had been lying near the window, his head by the marble window seat. There were two wounds, one between the eyes and the other, the fatal one, on the back of the head. He was lying on his back? Ah, uh, yes, uh, there's the mark. He pointed to a small dark stain on the floor. Could not a blow on the back of the head have been caused by his striking the floor? No, impossible. Whatever the weapon was, it penetrated some distance into the skull. Poirot looked thoughtfully in front of him. In the embrasure of each window was a carved marble seat, the arms being fashioned in the form of a lion's head. A light came into Poirot's eyes. Supposing he had fallen backwards on this projecting lion's head and slipped from there to the ground... Would not that cause a wound such as you describe? Yes, it would. But the angle at which he was lying makes that theory impossible. And besides, there could not fail to be traces of blood on the marble of the seat. Unless they were washed away. The doctor shrugged his shoulders. But that's hardly likely. 
it would be to no one's advantage to give an accident the appearance of murder. Quite so, acquiesced Poirot. Could either the blows have been struck by a woman, do you think? Oh, quite out of the question, I should say. You're thinking of Mademoiselle St. Clair, I suppose. I am thinking of no one in particular until I am sure, said Poirot gently. He turned his attention to the open French window, and the doctor continued. It's through here that Mademoiselle St. Clair fled. You can just catch a glimpse of Daisy Mead between the trees. Of course, there are many houses nearer to the front of the house on the road, but as it happens, Daisy Mead, though some distance away, is the only house visible this side. Thank you for your amiability, Doctor, said Poirot. Come, Hastings, we will follow the footsteps of Mademoiselle. Poirot led the way down through the garden, out through an iron gate across a short stretch of green, and in through the garden gate of Daisymead, which was an unpretentious little house in about half an acre of ground. There was a small flight of steps leading up to a French window. Poirot nodded in their direction. That is the way Mademoiselle St. Clair went. For us, who have not her urgency to plead, it will be better to go round to the front door. A maid admitted us and took us into the drawing room, then went in search of Mrs. Oglander. The room had evidently not been touched since the night before. The ashes were still in the grate, and the bridge table was still in the centre of the room with a dummy exposed and the hands thrown down. The place was somewhat overloaded with gimcrack ornaments, and a good many family portraits of surpassing ugliness adorned the walls. Poirot gazed at them more leniently than I did, and straightened one or two that were hanging a shade askew. La famille, it is a strong tie, is it not? Sentiment, it takes the place of beauty. I agreed, my eyes being fixed on a family group comprising a gentleman with whiskers, a lady with a high front of hair, a stolid, thick-set boy, and two little girls tied up with a good many unnecessary bows of ribbon. I took this to be the Oglander family in earlier days and studied it with interest. The door opened and a young woman came in. Her dark hair was neatly arranged and she wore a drab-coloured sports coat and a tweed skirt. She looked at us inquiringly. Poirot stepped forward. Miss Oglander, I regret to derange you, especially after all you have been through. The whole affair must have been most disturbing. Uh, it has been rather upsetting, admitted the young lady cautiously. I began to think that the elements of drama were wasted on Miss Oglander, that her lack of imagination rose superior to any tragedy. I was confirmed in this belief as she continued. I must apologize for the state the room is in. Servants get so foolishly excited. It was here that you were sitting last night, n'est-ce pas? Uh, yes, we were playing bridge after supper when... Uh... Excuse me... How long had you been playing? Well, Miss Oglander considered. I really can't say. I suppose it must have been about ten o'clock. We'd had several rubbers, I know. And you yourself were sitting where? Uh, facing the window. I was playing with my mother and had gone one no trump. Suddenly, without any warning, the window burst open and Miss St. Clair staggered into the room. You recognized her? I had a vague idea her face was familiar. She is still here, is she not? Yes, but she refuses to see anyone. She is still quite prostrated. Oh, I think she will see me. Will you tell her that I am here at the express request of Prince Paul of Morania?
I fancied that the mention of a royal prince rather shook Miss Oglander's imperturbable calm. But she left the room on her errand without any further remark and returned almost immediately to say that Mademoiselle St. Clair would see us in her room. We followed her upstairs and into a fair-sized light bedroom. On a couch by the window a woman was lying who turned her head as we entered. The contrast between the two women struck me at once, the more so as in actual features and colouring they were not unalike, but, oh, the difference! Not a look, not a gesture of Valerie St. Clair's, but expressed drama. She seemed to exhale an atmosphere of romance. A scarlet flannel dressing-gown covered her feet, a homely garment in all conscience, but the charm of her personality invested it with an exotic flavour, and it seemed an eastern robe of glowing colour. Her large, dark eyes fastened themselves on Poirot. "'You come from Paul?' Her voice matched her appearance. It was full and languid. "'Yes, mademoiselle. I am here to serve him and you.' "'What do you want to know?' "'Everything that happened last night. Oh, but everything?' She smiled rather wearily. "'Do you think I should lie?' I'm not stupid. I see well enough there can be no concealment. He held a secret of mine, that man who is dead. He threatened me with it. For Paul's sake I endeavoured to make terms with him. I could not risk losing Paul. Now that he is dead, I am safe. But for all that I did not kill him. Poirot shook his head with a smile. It is not necessary to tell me that, mademoiselle. Now, recount to me what happened last night. I offered him money. He appeared to be willing to treat with me. He appointed last night at nine o'clock. I was to go to Mont Désir. Oh, I knew the place. I'd been there before. I was to go round to the side door into the library so that the servants should not see me. Excuse me, mademoiselle, but were you not afraid to trust yourself alone there at night? Or was it my fancy, or was there a momentary pause before she answered? Um, perhaps I was, but you see there was no one I could ask to go with me, and I was desperate. Reedburn admitted me to the library. Oh, that man! I am glad he's dead. He played with me as a cat does with a mouse. He taunted me. I begged and implored him on my knees. I offered him every jewel I have, all in vain. Then he named his own terms, and perhaps you can guess what they were. I refused. I told him what I thought of him. I raved at him. He remained calmly smiling. And then, as I fell to silence at last, there was a sound from behind the curtain in the window. He heard it too. He strode to the curtains and flung them wide apart. There was a man there, hiding, a dreadful-looking man, a sort of tramp. He struck at Mr. Reburn. Then he struck again, and he went down. The tramp clutched at me with his blood-stained hand. I tore myself free, slipped through the window, and ran for my life. Then I perceived the lights in this house and made for them. I almost fell into the room. I just managed to gasp out, Murder! And then everything went black. Thank you, mademoiselle. It must have been a great shock to your nervous system. As to this tramp, could you describe him? Do you remember what he was wearing? 
No, it was all so quick. But I should know the man anywhere. His face is burnt in on my brain. Just one more question, mademoiselle. The curtains of the other window, the one giving on the drive, were they drawn? For the first time, a puzzled expression crept over the dancer's face. She seemed to be trying to remember. Eh bien, mademoiselle? I think I'm almost sure. Yes, quite sure. They were not drawn. Oh, that is curious, since the other ones were. No, no matter. It is, I dare say, of no great importance. You are remaining here long, mademoiselle? The doctor thinks I shall be fit to return to town tomorrow. She looked round the room. Miss Oglander had gone out. These people, they're very kind, but they're not of my world. I shock them, and to me, well, I'm not fond of the bourgeoisie. A faint note of bitterness underlay her words. Poirot nodded. I understand. I hope I have not fatigued you and Julie with my questions. Oh, not at all, monsieur. I'm only too anxious Paul should know all as soon as possible. Then I will wish you good day, mademoiselle. As Poirot was leaving the room, he paused and pounced on a pair of patent leather slippers. Yours, mademoiselle? Uh, yes, monsieur, they have just been cleaned and brought up. Ah, said Poirot as we descended the stairs. It seems that the domestics are not too excited to clean shoes, though they forget a grate. Well, mon ami, at first there appeared to be one or two points of interest, but I fear, I very much fear, that we must regard the case as finished. It all seems straightforward enough. And the murderer? Hercule Poirot does not hunt down tramps replied my friend grandiloquently. Miss Oglander met us in the hall. If you will wait in the drawing-room a minute, Mamma would like to speak to you. The room was still untouched, and Poirot idly gathered up the cards, shuffling them with his tiny, fastidiously groomed hands. Do you know what I think, my friend? No, I said eagerly. I think that Miss Oglander made a mistake in going one note, Trump. She should have gone three spades. Oh, Poirot, you are the limit. Mon Dieu, I cannot always be talking blood and thunder. Suddenly he stiffened. Hastings, Hastings, see, the king of clubs is missing from the pack. Zara, I cried. Eh? He did not seem to understand my illusion. Mechanically he stacked the cards and put them away in their cases. His face was very grave. Hastings, he said at last, I, Hercule Poirot, have come near to make a big mistake, a very big mistake. I gazed at him, impressed, but utterly uncomprehending. We must begin again, Hastings, yes, we must begin again, but this time we shall not err. He was interrupted by the entrance of a handsome middle-aged lady. She carried some household books in her hand. Poirot bowed to her. Do I understand, sir, that you are a friend of uh, Miss St. Clair's? I come from a friend of hers, madame. Oh, I see. I, I thought perhaps... Poirot suddenly waved brusquely at the window. Your blinds were not pulled down last night. Uh, no, I suppose that's why Miss St. Clair saw the light so plainly. 
Oh, there was moonlight last night. I wonder that you did not see Mademoiselle Sinclair from your seat here facing the windows. Well, I suppose we were engrossed with our game. Nothing like this has ever happened before to us. I can't quite believe that, madame, and I will put your mind at rest. Mademoiselle Sinclair is leaving tomorrow. Oh, the good lady's face cleared. And I will wish you good morning, madame. A servant was cleaning the steps as we went out of the front door. Poirot addressed her. Was it you who cleaned the shoes of the young lady upstairs? The maid shook her head. Oh, no, sir, I don't think they've been cleaned. Who cleaned them, then? I inquired of Poirot as we walked down the road. Nobody. They did not need cleaning. Well, I grant that walking on the road or path on a fine night would not soil them, but surely after going through the long grass of the garden... They would have been soiled and stained. Yes, said Poirot with a curious smile. In that case, I agree, they would have been stained. But have patience a little half hour, my friend. We are going back to Mondésir. The butler looked surprised at our reappearance, but offered no objection to our returning to the library. Hi, that's the wrong window, Poirot, I cried as he made for the one overlooking the carriage drive. I think not, my friend. See here. He pointed to the marble lion's head. On it was a faint, discoloured smear. He shifted his finger and pointed to a similar stain on the polished floor. Someone struck Reedburn with a blow with his clenched fist between the eyes. He fell backwards on this projecting bit of marble, then slipped to the floor. Afterwards he was dragged across the floor to the other window and laid there instead, but not quite at the same angle as the doctor's evidence told us. But why? It seems utterly unnecessary. On the contrary, it was essential. Also, it is the key to the murderer's identity. Though, by the way, he had no intention of killing Reedburn, and so it is hardly permissible to call him a murderer. He must be a very strong man. What, because of having dragged the body across the floor? Not altogether. It has been an interesting case. I nearly made an imbecile of myself, though. What do you mean to say it's over, that you know everything? Yes. A remembrance smote me. Oh, no, I cried. There's one thing you do not know. And that? You do not know where the missing king of clubs is. Eh? Oh, that is droll. That is very droll, my friend. Why? Because it is in my pocket. He drew it forth with a flourish. Oh, I said rather crestfallen. Where did you find it? Here? No, there was nothing sensational about it. It had simply not been taken out with the other cards. It was in the box. Oh. Well, all the same, it gave you an idea, didn't it? Yes, my friend. I present my respects to His Majesty. And to Madame Zara? Oh, yes, to the lady or so. Well, what are we going to do now? We are going to return to town, but I must have a few words with a certain lady at Desimide first. The same little maid opened the door to us. They're all at lunch now, sir, unless it's Miss St. Clair you want to see, and she's resting. It will do if I can see Mrs. Oglander for a few minutes. Will you tell her? We were led into the drawing room to wait. I had a glimpse of the family in the dining room as we passed, now reinforced by the presence of two heavy, solid-looking men, one with a moustache, the other with a beard also. 
In a few minutes, Mrs. Oglander came into the room looking inquiringly at Poirot, who bowed. Mother, we in our country have a great tenderness, a great respect for the mother. The mère de famille. She is everything. Mrs. Oglander looked rather astonished at this opening. It is for that reason that I have come, to allay a mother's anxiety. The murderer of Mr. Reedburn will not be discovered, have no fear. I, Hercule Poirot, tell you so. I am right, am I not? Or is it a wife that I must reassure? There was a moment's pause. Mrs. Oglander seemed searching Poirot with her eyes. At last she said quietly, I don't know how you know, but yes, you are right. Poirot nodded gravely. That is all, madame, but do not be uneasy. Your English policemen have not the eyes of Hercule Poirot. He tapped the family portrait on the wall with his fingernail. You had another daughter once. She is dead, madame. Again there was a pause as she searched him with her eyes. Then she answered, Yes, she is dead. Ah, said Poirot briskly. Well, we must return to town. You permitted I return the king of clubs to the pack? <laughs> it was your only slip. You understand, to have played bridge for an hour or so with only fifty-one cards? <laughs> well, no one who knows anything of the game would credit it for a minute. Bonjour. And now, my friend, said Poirot as we stepped towards the station, you see it all. I see nothing. Who killed Reedburn? John Oglander, Jr. I was not quite sure if it was the father or the son, but I fixed on the son as being the stronger and younger of the two. It had to be one of them because of the window. Why? There were four exits from the library. Two doors, two windows. But evidently only one would do. Three exits gave on the front, directly or indirectly. The tragedy had to occur in the back window in order to make it appear that Valerie St. Clair came to Daisy Mead by chance. Really, of course, she fainted, and John Oglander carried her across over his shoulders. That is why I said he must be a strong man. Did they go there together, then? Yes. You remember Valerie's hesitation when I asked her if she was not afraid to go alone? John Oglander went with her, which didn't improve Reedburn's temper, I fancy. They quarrelled, and it was probably some insult levelled at Valerie that made Oglander hit him. The rest you know. But why the bridge? Bridge presupposes four players. A simple thing like that carries a lot of conviction. Who would have supposed that there had been only three people in that room all evening? I was still puzzled. Now, there's one thing I don't understand. What have the Oglanders to do with the dancer Valerie St. Clair? Ah, that I wonder you did not see. And yet you looked long enough at a picture on the wall, longer than I did. Mrs. Oglander's other daughter may be dead to her family, but the world knows her as Valerie St. Clair. What? Did you not see the resemblance the moment you saw the two sisters together? Well, no, I confessed. I only thought how extraordinarily dissimilar they were. Ah, oh, that is because your mind is so open to external romantic impressions, my dear Hastings. Their features are almost identical, so is the colouring. 
The interesting thing is that Valerie is ashamed of her family, and her family is ashamed of her. Nevertheless, in a moment of peril, she turned to her brother for help, and when things went wrong, they all hung together in a remarkable way. Family strength is a marvelous thing. They can all act, that family. That is where Valerie gets her histrionic talent from. I, like Prince Paul, believe in heredity. They deceived me. But for a lucky accident and test question to Mrs. Oglander, by which I got her to contradict her daughter's account of how they were sitting, the Oglander family would have put a defeat on Hercule Poirot. But what shall you tell the prince? Mm, that Valerie could not possibly have committed a crime, and that I doubt if that tramp will ever be found. Also to convey my compliments to Zara, a curious coincidence that. I think I shall call this little affair the adventure of the King of Clubs. What do you think, my friend? <laughs>